So Jesus taught 55 parables. Some of them are very clear. They're just comparison. This parable, he gives the parable, and then he says, this is how you're supposed to live. But some of them are parables of contrast. This person did this, and because of that, this is true. An example of that is the parable of the annoying neighbor. That's my own name for that parable, by the way. I don't know that anybody else calls it the annoying neighbor, but the parable of the annoying neighbor. So you got two guys living next to each other. One guy has a visitor at midnight, has no, no food for him, so he goes to his neighbor. Midnight, knocks on the door. Hey, I need some bread. I've got a visitor. Go away. I'm in bed. My kids are in bed. Go away. But the neighbor kept knocking. And finally, the one neighbor who was sleeping got up and gave him bread. Now, in my mind, I picture him throwing it out the window like a football. Here is your bread. Let me go back to sleep. Uh, so, and, and then it says, Jesus told this parable so that mid would know not to stop praying. So the whole purpose of that parable was that we would continue to pray and that we wouldn't give up. So what's God saying? Are we, are we annoying to him? Are we just like, hi, God, can you do it? Can you help me? Can you help me? Can you help me? And God's like, fine, yes, finally, I'll do anything if you just shut up. But that's not what the parable's saying. It's saying if an annoyed neighbor will give to a persistent neighbor because they persist, how much more will your heavenly father who loves you and wants to give to you give to you when you persist, when you continue in prayer? And so that's like the parable of the unjust steward, okay? That's what we're gonna look at today. This steward who was entrusted by a master with finances, with things, and is unjust with his stewardship. And the real power in this parable is that every one of us here are in a stewardship with God. God has given you a stewardship. He's trusted you with finances. He's trusted you with skills. He's trusted you with talents. He's trusted you with relationships. You are a steward and you wanna be a faithful steward and you wanna be shrewd in the way that you use the stewardship for your future as well. So that's what we're gonna learn from this parable. So we wanna pick it up in verse one of chapter 16. We're in this section of the Bible, by the way, in Luke, where there's just a lot of parables in a row. And we have what follows this might be a parable, might not be a parable. Um, it's, the, it's the rich man and Lazarus, the one that dies and goes to a place of comfort and the other one that dies and goes to a place of misery. So we may be talking about hell next week. We may be talking about something else. We may be looking at a Christmas story. <laughs> saving, saving the other passages for another point and another time. But in verse one of chapter 16, as he wraps these parables up, he, he, it says, he also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward and an accusation was brought against him that this man was wasting his goods. So he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship for you can no longer be my steward. So in their day, people who were wealthy had someone who was over their entire household, everything, and they were their steward. We use the word today, although we don't use stewards in the same way in our culture generally. We don't call them stewards. Today we'll say, are you a good steward of what God has given you? That's the same idea. I want to be a good steward. And this might just be a little bit of Christianese. I'm, quite, I'm not quite sure. You know, I've been a Christian for 40-something years. 
So I don't know if people outside of Christianity talk about being a good steward or not, but I do know it is a principle we understand as Christians well that God entrusts us with certain things and expects us to be good stewards with it. So there's a couple of passages where the Bible tells us that we are stewards. So like this unfaithful steward, we're a steward as well. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. They'll bring this up for you. It says, um, let, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. So there are certain mysteries that were in the Old Testament, mysteries of the church, mystery of the, the, the end times, the last days, mystery of the gospel. And we have become stewards of those mysteries. God has put them in our care. And it's required that stewards are to be faithful. So we want to be faithful with what God's given us. So we live our lives in such a way that people see Christ in us, the hope of glory, and we're faithful to the things God's called us to do. Another passage that talks about stewardship is in 1 Peter 4.10. They'll bring this up as well. As each one has received a gift, every one of you here that's a genuine Christian that's received Christ as your Savior, you have been given a gift by God, at least one gift. I'm gonna be, I think that these are spiritual gifts, gifts given by the Holy Spirit. It says, as each one of you has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So as God gives you a gift, he doesn't give you a gift to hide it, right? He gives you the gift that you would be a good steward with whatever that gift is that you have. And it's one of the reasons that we invite you to be a part of what we're doing here in ministry so that your gift can be used within the body of Christ. But this steward cheated. He's a bad steward. He, had, he was unfaithful. He wasn't a faithful steward. And the Bible also tells us that when we are doing things that are wrong, that sooner or later our sin is going to be found out. His sin was found out. These are scary verses, by the way. So a little warning. These should come with a warning tag. These are scary, but maybe they'll help us. In Numbers 32, 23, it says, it's giving direction to Israel to live for God, to live um, for him, to follow the law. And then he says, but if you don't do so, this is Numbers 32, 23, Take note, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. So, so the, the steward's sin found him out. There, there's another passage in Proverbs 6, 27 and 28. Same thought. Can a man take fire into his bosom and his clothes not be burned? I like the one translation that says, can a man take fire into his lap and not be burned? It goes on to say, can one walk on hot coals and not have his feet seared. So we want to be faithful stewards to the things God's given us. And if we're not being faithful, then sooner or later it will be revealed. And I bring up that God is going to reveal it because God is a revealer of sin, but God is also one who hides sin. If you repent, call out upon his name, if there's something you know you're doing that you shouldn't be doing, God will forgive you, put your sin behind his back and remember it no more. And you'll never, you'll never have to give an account for that sin because Jesus gave an account for it on the cross, his death upon the cross. So as we see the exposure of this steward, it's good for us to evaluate, always good to evaluate and say, is there anything that I need to just make sure that I'm right 
because this guy's day came, he was going to lose his job. Now, also remember this is a parable. This isn't an account that actually happened. So people will come up to me after parables and they'll say things like, do you think that maybe it was just an accusation and not real? It's a story. I, I don't know. There's no real person behind the story. There's a point being made by the story, right? And so in verse 3, then the steward said to himself, what shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig and I am ashamed to beg. Now, maybe he can't dig just because he doesn't want to. Digging's a drag, right? Maybe he's got an injury he can't dig, but he's just too ashamed to beg. He's not too ashamed to steal, but he's too ashamed to beg. He says, I have resolved what to do that when I am put out of the stewardship, I may receive, they, others may receive me into their houses. So he becomes shrewd in the sense that he says, I'm going to do something so that people will feel indebted to me. And when I no longer have a job, they're going to take me in. Verse five. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. Now, the first thing we need to know about this is that that's an extremely large amount of, of oil. It, we're talking olive oil. They used it to cook their food in. They used it for oil to burn lamps with. It would take 300 olive trees in one year to be able to harvest this much oil from them. So it's a significant amount. I bring that up because people try to justify this parable uh, by saying, this confusing parable, by saying, well, the steward is just giving up what was his anyway. As a steward, you got a cut for what the master had. And so he's just giving up his cut. There's a couple things that don't make sense. Number one, if this is enough oil for a, a normal family for three years, what he's going to give away, just what he's going to give away is, then if he was going to lose his job, you might not want to give away what you have. You might want to keep what you have. The second thing is they, were, they, they never got 50%. They got a certain percentage, but it was never 50%. He's stealing from this man further. He is caught stealing. And so he decides, I'm going to steal more and I'm going to, I'm going to get people in on it so that they help me. And so he said, I owe 100 measures of oil. He asked, how much do you owe my master? Measures of oil. He says, 100 measures of oil. And he said, take your bill, sit down quickly and write 50. Notice the quickly there, right? It reminds me of car salesmen. You can only get the deal today. That's it. Got to act today or forget about it. There's never going to be a car you can buy in the history of the world unless you buy it today. I had that happen recently where we were looking at purchasing something. They said, we got to buy it by Friday. Oh, no pressure. No pressure there. We didn't buy it, by the way. <laughs> Sit down quickly. And the reason quickly is because he's cheating. <laughs> and, and the guy knows it. And the guy's like, really? You're going to cut my bill in half by, three, by, by, by 100 measures of oil? Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. Again, I could go through the details. Let me just tell you, it's a lot of wheat. This is not a small amount of wheat. It's a lot, okay? And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So he did this through all of the people that owed his master money so that later on they would go, you did me a solid, I'm gonna do you a solid back. I'm gonna help you, you helped me, I helped you. You wash my, I'm gonna wash your hand. And so in verse eight, it says, so the master commended the unjust steward 
because he had dealt shrewdly. Now, that's the problem with this passage. People say things like this. Jesus commended the unjust steward. And my response is, no, he didn't. The master that doesn't exist in a parable commended him. Right? The, so the master commended the unjust steward. The master was like, good job, buddy. You know, you were out there on the street, but you figured out a way that people would owe you and, and you acted shrewdly. Here's what Jesus says. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. He's saying there's a way that we are not being shrewd when it comes to the kingdom of God. There's a way we're not being shrewd when it comes to eternity. There's a way in which people in the world are better at it than we as Christians. And again, now we understand why this is a confusing parable, right? In Matthew 10, 16, Jesus said this. It's another confusing thing that we have a hard time getting a hold of. He said, as he was sending out his disciples, behold, I send you out as sheep among wolves. Therefore, you must be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We understand the harmless as doves, but as wise as serpents. God wants us to be wise. God wants us to be smart as we interact with people in the world and we are to be as harmless as doves. We're not supposed to hurt people, but we are to be wise in the way that we live. Now, a lot of the parables, Jesus gives the parables and then moves on. And we're left alone to kind of compare it to other parables and guess he doesn't do that in this one. Praise the Lord. We have him giving us exactly what the application should be. Jesus goes to an application section. And so in verse nine, he says, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon. And when you fail, you may receive, uh, they may receive you into an everlasting home. So Jesus is comparing us to the unjust steward by saying, take the unrighteous mammon, that was the 50 measures of oil and the 30 measures or, or 20 measures of wheat, that we would take that and make sure that we are making friends in heaven. Now, mammon literally means wealth. That's what mammon is. It's not just money. It is wealth. In the pantheon of gods, this isn't going to shock you, there was a God of wealth. There was a God of mammon. Because people were like, I want to, I want to serve that God because I want, to be, I want to be rich. Do you know that there's something that psychologists have called the misery index? They, they look at people's lives and they rate them by whether or not they're, they're miserable in their lives. And the interesting thing on the misery index is that people who score high in it are people that have money, which is just interesting. So if you don't have any money, you're, you're blessed in a way. You're, you're not, you know, you might still rank, rank high on the misery index for whatever reason, but not because of money. Now, here's the thing. We know that. Give it enough time and you'll have some kind of a liquidity event. And they're, they're rare in life, but they happen. And you're going to have money. All of a sudden, you'll have money. And you'll realize, I thought I would be happier when I have money. I thought this would answer every, every problem that I have. There's a reason that wealthier people commit suicide at a higher rate than non-wealthy people. The same kind of principle. Now, we say things like, Lord, I know this is true, 
But, but I also know there are people who are wealthy who are happy, and I'd like to try to be that person. <laughs> Why don't you let me be wealthy, and I'll be, I won't be on that misery index. I'll be happy with it. But we do know that. The Bible tells us in the book of James that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and many have become shipwrecked in their faith because of it. So there are those that love money. Doesn't, they might, this is the irony. They might not even have money. They just love money. And they become shipwrecked in their faith. And I have known, I've had friends who have put too high of an emphasis upon money. They quit a very high paying job to go into ministry. And then later on, quit the ministry to go back into a high paying job. And it ended up shipwrecking their faith. Now, some good things are happening for him today as it comes to Christ, and that's really good. But we need to know that that danger is out there. So God encourages us to take what he's given us. Whatever you have, think of the, the money that you have. Just put it all into one pot. Let's think of the money you have. Let's think of the debt you have. Let's think of what your net worth is after that. So your net worth is all of your assets minus your liabilities equals your net worth, right? So that's what God's given you. Maybe you haven't been the best steward. Maybe you've got a lot of debt and you want to clean that up and you do want to clean it up. I'm not saying that no debt is important, but certainly over debt is. And you are a steward of that. God's made you a steward of that. That you would take some of it to prepare for your future. You would take some of it to pay your bills and you would take some of it to give to people who are in need and to the work of the gospel. That's the idea of the stewardship. And so we are to take unrighteous mammon and invest it into the kingdom of God so that when we get to heaven, we're able to transfer some of our wealth that way. You can't, you can't wire it to heaven. You can't transfer it from your bank to heaven. Even those of you that are into cryptocurrency, you can't use your wallet to send cryptocurrency to heaven. But when you see someone in real need and you help them, somehow there's a blessing in heaven. I'm not saying you're transferring the wealth there, but God is saying, I will not forget those kindnesses that you give and the work of the gospel, he will not forget. So then he says in verse 10, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in least is also unjust in much. So first of all, he's saying, Use the, the, the unrighteous mammon, the unrighteous wealth that you've been given and use that for the kingdom of heaven. Use it for your future. And the Bible gives us all kinds of encouragement. Given it will be given unto you, pressed down, shaken together and running over. The, um, Paul wrote to the Philippians. The Philippians were a poor church in Europe. And Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, taken to Caesarea Philippi and then taken to Rome. And he was under house arrest. He was allowed to rent a house. He had a guard there with him and he was still in chains. So his house arrest in Rome is, a, is by no means a picnic, okay? He's, he's not in a Roman jail, which would be miserable, but he is under house arrest and there's one church that helps him financially. It's Philippi, which happens to be a, an impoverished church, which happens to be a poor church. And they give to Paul and Paul writes them to thank them. And Paul says to them, May my God meet all of your riches 
according to your needs. He, he's not saying, may my God give you money. He's saying whatever your need. They were a, a highly um, persecuted church. May God meet your needs as you have given. May it be given back to you. And I realize the television evangelists, the prosperity preachers want you to think that if you give, God's going to give to you and you're going to be rich. They, they, they play out that. But that is just so anti-biblical, it's not even funny. What God is saying is, if you are a generous person, I'll be generous to you. The way we treat people is the way we're treated. Jesus said, forgive and you'll be forgiven. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. The mercy you give is the mercy you're going to receive. The way you judge is the way you're going to be judged. The way we treat people is the way God treats us. And I've, I've said this before, and I won't go into it all again. That's not karma. Because everyone saw somebody say, yeah, karma. I understand that. No, karma is when you do something in this life that is bad and you come back as a cockroach in the next life. That's karma. <laughs> it has to do with what you do living today in your next life. It doesn't have to do with what you're doing today that comes back to you. That's biblical. The, 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 the principle in the Bible of sowing and reaping. If I sow to the spirit, from the spirit I reap life. If I sow to the flesh, from the flesh I reap corruption. And as I give, God gives back to me. When it comes to giving, God wants none of us to be compelled to give. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, do not, uh, do not give out of compulsion, but give it joyfully, which means you get to decide. Don't let any preacher tell you that you're robbing from God if you don't tithe. The, the tithe was an Old Testament principle. Yes, it predated the law, but all the passages that talk about robbing God and, and we're, we're in the middle of a theocracy, okay, not a democracy, a theocracy, a government ran by God, and you pay tithe under that theocracy. In the New Testament, we give as we determine in our hearts. And God doesn't want you giving because you feel like you have to. God wants you to have joy in helping someone, joy in giving to the work of the gospel. Now, if you don't have very much, and this is what Jesus says in verse 10, if you're, if you're faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. So if you don't have very much and you give, then you're going to be faithful when you have more. If you don't give when you don't have much, and there could be a lot of reasons, you might think, I need everything I got. And so you don't reach out in faith and give to someone or, or to the gospel. Or it could be, you just don't feel like it's much. Look, I got $20 to my name. If I give God five, what's that going to do towards the electric bill? Well, it might not do much towards the electric bill of the church, but that's not what matters. Jesus watched the woman give her widow's mites or two widow's mites and said she gave more than everyone because she gave everything they had. Other people gave out of their resources. So God's looking at us when we give. And when you are faithful when you don't have, you'll be faithful when you have. If you're unjust when you don't have, you're going to be unjust when you don't have. Those are the words of Jesus. He continues on in his application of this text. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon who will commit to your trust the true riches. So God uses money, wealth as a test as to whether or not we are really worthy to be entrusted with real, real wealth, real spiritual things. So we want to be faithful with it. We, want to, we know we're stewards. We know God's put it into our trust. We want to make sure we're preparing for our future. We want to make sure we're paying our bills. We want to make sure that we're giving some to those who are in need, that we're helping out in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just being good stewards. And this is a test for us. And I won't ask you to evaluate yourself right now, well, how you're doing on the test. 
You can evaluate yourself better. Some of you guys will do, be doing very well and some of you guys will not be doing well at all. But Jesus is telling us this because he wants us to be blessed in the future. This is what the unjust steward was, was good at in preparing his future. And God, Jesus wants it to be good for you. So he goes on to say in verse 12, and if, if you have not been faithful with what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? So God wants to entrust you with something that is truly yours. And money is just something we need in this world. It's just something we, we need to get through here. God doesn't need it. And God will give us what is our own. It's very powerful. He then gives us this statement. No servant can serve two masters. For you will either hate one or love the other, or else you will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. That love of money is destructive and you can't serve them both. And you think, well, I'm, I love God. I want to serve him and follow him, but I also love money and I want to make my life, you know, just making money. That's what I want to do. But sooner or later, you'll be isolated. You'll love one and hate the other. And hopefully it will become a deep love for God and not a deep love for money. But that's the warning against living for money. It's always destructive. Now he continues on with his application because there are some Pharisees that hear him say that. It says in verse uh, 14, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money, you can love God and money, but you can't love them both, right? They're lovers of money, also heard all these things and they derided him. The, word, the Greek word for deride there has the word nose right in the middle of it. And it means they put their nose in the air and they mocked him. They openly mocked him because they loved money so much for someone to tell them that they can't serve God in money caused them to mock him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to God. So the things that men highly esteem is an abomination to God. Again, another statement of Jesus. Men highly esteem gold. It's the asphalt of heaven. Now, I don't know whether that's a metaphor or not when the Bible talks about heaven having, you know, streets of gold. But if it's real or a metaphor, it's very powerful. The stuff men will kill for here, deceive for and die for is asphalt in heaven. It's an abomination to God. Are you living for something that men esteem highly, but is an abomination to God? These Pharisees were as they were lovers of money. So in verse 16, he said, makes a statement about the law and I'll explain it in a moment. He says, the law and the prophets were until John, that's John the Baptist. So the law and the prophets were a time frame and we're now in the church age. And he says, since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached. John preached it, Jesus preached it. And everyone is pressing in. Large crowds are following Jesus, wanting to become followers and believers in this, this new age. In verse 17, and it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fall away. So he's telling these scribes and Pharisees who are living for money that they are still under the law. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. You and I know that the law has been fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus said in another place, not one jot or tittle of the law is going to pass away. A tittle or a jot is the dot over an I or a the T, uh, line crossing the T in Hebrew. 
which they don't have I's like we do or T's like we do, but you get the point. It's the accent marks they put around letters to make them mean one thing or another. And he says, not one bit of it's going to pass away until it's fulfilled. And what we know is that Jesus fulfilled the law. The law tells us to give sacrifices. We don't give sacrifices because Jesus became our sacrifice on the cross. The, the law said to have a high priest. We don't have a high priest because Jesus is our high priest. And we could go on through all of the aspects of the law and talk about why the law has finished or fulfilled. Moses opened the law and Jesus closed it. But these Pharisees are living by the law. And so he now brings up another point at which they esteem something highly, but to God, it's an abomination. The point that he brings up is marriage here. Listen to what he says. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, there are those who believe that this verse is misplaced, that it should have been in another place. They just can't see how it is connected to the one prior to it. I don't think it's misplaced at all. In Deuteronomy, there's only one place in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy where it talked about divorce. And it gave men the right to divorce their wives. And it didn't give the reasons. It didn't go down a list of what was acceptable reasons to divorce. So they had to determine that based on the law. So there were two lines of thoughts. There were rabbis who were conservative and believed it was only sexual immorality, only adultery. Your wife commits adultery, you can divorce her. And then there was another group of more liberal theologians who believed you could divorce your wife for any reason. That you made a commitment, but if you found somebody prettier, hey, I'm going to marry her, I'm divorcing you. If you didn't like her cooking, these are genuine examples from history that, of why people divorced their wives using Deuteronomy 24 as, as that. But God wants us to be faithful to our commitments, faithful in our marriages, and faithful to one another. And so Jesus chimes in on where he stands on, is he conservative when it comes to Deuteronomy 24 or is he liberal theologically when it comes to Deuteronomy 24? And he chimes in that he's conservative. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. So for all of these guys that have, these Pharisees who love money and are scoffing at Jesus, these guys have divorced their wives because they're trying to make their lives better. It's like when you're keeping money, you're hoarding it to try to make your life better. They've divorced their wives because they think that I found a prettier one or I found one that's going to be better for me. And so they're divorcing their wives. And he's saying, and you are committing adultery under the law. The law's not going to fade away. The law's not going to, you're committing adultery under it. This is an abomination to God that people would dismiss their spouses for no reason. This is why I want to do a study, and I think it's so necessary, on marriage, divorce, remarriage, and the Christian. Because there is a lot in there, and we live in a day where there's a lot of divorce that's taking place and a lot of divorce that's taking place within the church. And I can say this, that God honors men and women when they honor their commitment and that we want to be committed to those whom we have made commitments to. Um, every so often, I'll have a husband who will say to me, my wife just doesn't submit. I don't know if they're looking for some kind of, uh, you know, connection, you know. Yeah, it's just one of those things. Wives don't submit. But they're like, my wife just won't submit. You know, what should I do? And my response is, don't worry about your wife because that is a lot easier than what you're asked to do. 
you're asked to actually die for your wife. You're, you're Jesus, uh, uh, Paul wrote, husbands, love your wives and give your lives for them as Christ loved the church and gave his life for them. And, and, and the guy says, well, you don't understand what I'm living with. You don't understand what I'm going through. H how can you justify that statement after that commitment? And by the way, if you're dying for your wife, if you're loving her like Christ loves the church and dying for her, then she's going to have a lot easier time submitting to you. I'm a complementarian. I believe that that's what the Bible teaches, that, the, that there are roles for men and women within the family and within the church. But I believe that we are mistreating one another within marriage. And what God cares about the most is the way we treat each other. That's it. We, we think he cares about, he cares about the fact I, I got to quit smoking because God cares about that. Now, the Bible never says don't dry out tobacco, roll it up in a paper and suck the tar into your life. Doesn't say that. And I'm not saying it's good. Okay. I'm not saying God wants that. I'm simply saying we mistreat our spouses. We treat them wrong. The Bible says to husbands, your prayers are hindered because of the way you've treated your wife. And so Jesus is saying, not only is your stewardship with money, but your stewardship is in your marriage. How are you doing in your stewardship towards your husband and towards your wife? Because that has been entrusted with you. And these guys were divorcing, believing they had a right to do it. And he's showing him that God cares about that as well. Now, the summary of this entire parable is that we are stewards and we want to be good stewards of what God's given us. And I love that Jesus encourages us along those lines. I love that he gives us these kind of details so that we can be at the place where we just say to him, Lord, I need help. I want to be a good steward. Not always a good steward of what you give, but I want to be a good steward. And I certainly want to take what he's provided for us today and use it for the kingdom of God instead of stacking it up in heaven. And when it comes to the way that we treat our husband and our wife, that we would do so properly because that's what matters the most to God. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this parable and us understanding that we should invest what we have today, time, talents, finances, uh, relationships, so that we receive better in the future. And your word teaches this so clearly. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, that we would be good.